The scripture reading is from Mark 7, 1 through 8, 14 through 23. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Let's just pause and invite the Lord to speak to us through his word. Father, you have been speaking to us throughout this service, meeting with us, reminding us of your goodness and your truth, and we, we just ask for that to continue now as we look to your word. May we hear the voice of your spirit and the truth that sets free. In Christ's name, amen. So when you feel sick and you go to the doctor, perhaps the worst thing that could happen would be for you to receive the wrong diagnosis. And this doesn't happen very often, but once in a while, the doctor might examine you and run some tests, and then he or she might misinterpret the nature of your illness. You know, they might, sometimes a doctor might recommend surgery that wasn't really necessary. Or the doctor might prescribe some medication that your, your body does not actually need. And, you know, we all know when that, something like this happens, it's not good, is it? I mean, not, not only might you not recover from the illness you have, if you get a, a misdiagnosis, the treatment you receive could actually make things worse. Right? A, mis a misdiagnosis is a serious problem. Now, listen, it's even more serious when what's being diagnosed is not merely the condition of your body. It's even more serious when what's being diagnosed is the condition of your soul. 
And that, that's what was going on in the passage that we're looking at today. We, we look, I want, as we look at this passage, I just want to kind of touch on three thoughts. First, I want to talk about the wrong diagnosis of our spiritual need, all right? The wrong diagnosis. Then I want to talk about the right diagnosis. And, th- and then I want us to think about the cure. All right, so um, first, the wrong diagnosis. So th- this passage in Mark, it records an interaction that took place between Jesus and the, uh, the religious leaders of his society during the days of his ministry in Galilee. And you can see from the beginning of this passage that the, the religious leaders were criticizing the followers of Christ because apparently some of his disciples, did, they, they did not engage in the tradition of ceremonially washing their hands before they sat down to a meal. And, and you should understand that what's being discussed here, that this kind of washing, um, this had nothing to do with hygiene, and this was not something required in the law of Moses. There was nothing in their scriptures that said that you had to do this. The, the law of Moses, however, did say that um, the consumption of certain kinds of food was forbidden to them. And so apparently their, their, their thought was this. They're thinking, listen, if you go to the marketplace, just in case maybe you happened to touch some of this forbidden food, and um, you know, maybe with, without you knowing it, some little particles of that food might have stuck to your fingers, um, you need to wash your hands so that while you're eating, n- none of, none of this, this forbidden substance might, you know, inadvertently enter you. In other words, there's just being very, very safe, extra precautions to make sure that nothing impure might enter you. You see it explained here in verse 3 and 4, the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash they observed many other traditions, such as washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So this, this was their tradition, and it seems that they were sometimes very critical of people who did not follow that practice, okay? Now, it's, it's very um, convenient for us to beat up on these ancient Pharisees and make fun of them. I think, listen, before we do that, I think we should point out that this concern that they had for purity that concern actually came from a good place. These were, we're talking about, these were people who just, they truly wanted to be acceptable in the eyes of God. They're, they're not trying to be wicked or anything. They're just, they loved the Lord. They wanted to honor Him. They desired to be pleasing in God's sight. So would you agree that the, those, the, um, the, those desires came from kind of good motivations, right? The problem was they misunderstood the true need of their souls. It was like a misdiagnosis, and it's easy to do. Back in the 1990s, there was a social psychologist named Paul Rosen, and he and his colleagues conducted a study in which they asked the participants a hypothetical question, and the, the question they asked people was, would you be willing to try on a sweater that had belonged to Adolf Hitler? And it was like, no way, that's nasty, there's not, I'm not gonna put that sweater on. And so they said, all right, what if, uh, what if we have the sweater dry cleaned? Would you put it on? And still most people said, no way. And they said, okay, what if we were to unravel 
unravel all the yarn, wash the yarn, and re-knit it again as a new sweater, would you? And still most people said no. And so they finally said, what, you know, what if we were to do that, all this stuff to the, to the sweater, and then have Mother Teresa wear it around for a while? Would you then put it on? And still most people said no. There is no way I would ever, ever, ever let a garment that had touched the flesh of that wicked man, I would not let it come into contact with my body. I would not put it on. To be honest, I don't think I'd wear it either, all right? Now, I don't know if that study proves anything, but I think it, it at least confirmed um, a suspicion that psych psychologists have had for years, and that is that it's kind of instinctive to us as human beings to assume that moral contamination is something that threatens us from the outside. It, it comes from outside and threatens it's, it's the food we eat. It's the clothes we wear. It's the places we go. That's what's going to mess me up. It's, or it's the people that are, that are around, around me. In other words, it's, it's things, people, circumstances on the outside. That's what is going to damage me, make me impure. And so apparently that's what these Pharisees were thinking, that moral contamination comes from the outside. So for me to be right with God, I need to be very, very, very careful to get the outside conditions in my life. Wash my hands, wash the kettle, wash the pot. That's what, just I need to watch what I eat, I need to be care. I need to monitor these external circumstances. That, that will make things right for me. Now, isn't it easy to fall into that pattern of thinking? Let's imagine you have a friend who's really struggling in their marriage, and you ask them, what, well, what do you think is wrong in your relationship? Very rarely will they say, well, I think the problem in our relationship is me. I am messed up. No, most people are going to say, you know, the problem, it's him, it's her, right? It's the person I married. In other words, the assumption of, is if I had just married the right person, I would be so happy in my life right now. Or, or um, you ask a teenager, why are you angry all the time? Why are you so sullen? Why are you always so grumpy? And, and they might say, it's my parents. Man, if I just had my friend's parents, if I, if I had different parents, I would be the, listen, I would be the most well-adjusted teenager in the world. It's them. The problem is coming from outside me. And listen, I'm not picking on anyone. Don't we all do this? Why, why is our national pastime right now? I mean, this is our favorite thing to do. Why is our national pastime arguing about politics? Because we're just convinced what would fix America is if we could just get the right people in the White House, the right people in the Supreme Court, then it would be, the problem's not in here. No, it's, it's circumstances. So sometimes you'll meet, um, you'll meet Christians who, who just kind of seem to bounce from church to church. You know, like every six months they have a new church. And I, I sometimes wonder if this dynamic is what's going on with them. Now, let me explain. All Christians, all of us, we all struggle right? We struggle with doubts, we struggle with temptations, we struggle with discouragement, and, but when you find someone who's just constantly changing churches, you just kind of wonder, are, are they thinking that if I could just, if I could just find the right church, everything, in, everything would be fine, I wouldn't struggle anymore? If I just had the right preacher, if I just had the right worship, if only on Sunday mornings I could be surrounded by a better quality of Christian, you know, then, ooh, these people here, then then I wouldn't struggle anymore, right? In other, so this is common. It's common for us to think my problems come from outside me. And listen, when we think that way, it is almost always 
a misdiagnosis of our illness. To, to, to assume that the problem in your soul comes from outside you, it's to misdiagnose your spiritual need. And that's what Jesus says here. Verse 14 and 15 says, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, listen, understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. So he's saying, look, your problem is not the people around you. Your problem is not the place that you are. Your problem is not the moral decline of, West, of Western civilization. That's the problem. No, that's not the problem. Verse 18 and 19, he's talking again about the food they eat. He says, don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of the body. Literally, he said, and then into the toilet, all right? He's just saying to assume, to assume that the problems in your soul arise from situations outside you, that's a misdiagnosis of your need. So what's the right diagnosis? Well, Jesus, Jesus says it plainly. He says, the real problem is the heart. The real problem is the heart. Verse 6, Jesus said to these, the, the religious leaders who were so fastidious about external things, he, he said to them, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it's written, these people honor me with their lips. What does it say then? But their hearts are far from me. Isn't that kind of, I don't know, it kind of gives me goosebumps. It's kind of scary to think about that. You could be honoring God with your lips and your heart. Listen, you could be sitting in the right church. You could be, you could be reading all the right books. You could be singing all the right songs. You could be reciting all the right creeds. You, in other words, you could be saying all the right things with your lips and your heart could be, still be miles and miles away from God. So Jesus says the problem is the heart. And some of you have read the Bible enough to know that the Bible often talks about the heart. You ever notice that? It's talking about the heart, the heart this. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for out of it flow all the issues of life. Or it, God said in Jeremiah 17.10, He said, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to what their deeds deserve. King David, remember he prayed in Psalm 51, created me what? Created me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. So the Bible is just always talking about the heart, the heart, the heart. What does it mean by that? Well, you know that it's using the term metaphorically. When the Bible talks about your heart, it's, it's not talking about this muscle in your chest, you know, this organ that pumps blood through your body. When, when, the, when the Bible talks about the heart, it's talking about... It's talking about your inner, your inner person, it, your, your spirit, your soul, your mind, your thoughts, your emotions, your, your will, your attitude, your intentions. It's all of this. In other words, when the Bible says heart, it's talking about the real you, the real you. You've seen those... Um, have you seen those commercials for that? What is the credit card company? They always, other commercials, they always end with the same tagline. They ask the question, what's in your wallet? What's in your wallet, right? Jesus, say, Jesus would say, here's a more important question. What's in your heart? What's, what's really inside you? To diagnose your spiritual condition, Jesus said, you need to look inside. Verse 20, he, said, he says, he went on. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. 
Verse 21, he says, For it's from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. He said all these evils come from inside and defile a person. The real problem is it's, it's here. Now, I don't know if you notice what's it, what I think is in, intriguing about this list of sins that Jesus recites. He, sins, he says, that come from the heart. Did you notice that the list includes some pretty scandalous, shocking sins, right? Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery. But did you notice it also includes some fairly um, innocuous, hidden sins, kinds of sins that are often completely accepted in, in, in churches and in religious circles. You, you know, greed, envy, slander, arrogance. Isn't, isn't it interesting? Jesus, Jesus puts the scandalous sins and can we call them the more respectable sins? He puts them all on the same list. Isn't that weird? I mean, so to us, to, to us, um, prostitutes and preachers are very different kinds of people, right? But to Jesus, prostitutes and preachers have exactly the same problem. No difference. The problem's on the inside. You see, in, inside, um, inside we all have this rebellious, defiant streak. We, 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 all, we, all, um, we all have this kind of pride, all of us. We all, we all kind of go through life thinking, secretly thinking that we are better than others, secretly thinking that we're smarter than God. We have this, there's something in us that just resists the thought of bending our knee in, in submission to the, the authority of the Creator. We want, we want to live life our way, on our terms. The, the problem's in here. Jesus said what comes out of a person is what defiles them, for it's from within, from a person's heart. So Jesus said, listen, you want the right diagnosis? You want to know your real problem? It's you. It's me. Now, what's, what is the cure for this? Well, listen, if, if, if the problem is the heart, one thing the Bible makes clear, if the problem is the heart, then the cure must begin with repentance. You, you know, I hope you know, the Bible reveals that the, the God of Scripture is a God of mercy. Amen? Unlimited mercy. But the Bible also tells us that God, God's mercy is reserved exclusively for people who repent. His mercy is not for everyone. It's, it's for the, the repentance, all right? So what is, what is repentance? Well, listen, repentance is more than merely apologizing for the bad things that you've, you've done. It's more than just saying, oh, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I lost my temper. I'm sorry I didn't go to church. I'm sorry I looked at that website. I'm sorry I talked back to my mom. No, listen, it's important to confess our sins. We ought to feel sorry for them, but repentance is more than merely apologizing for the bad things you've done. You know what repentance is? Repentance is grieving over the kind of person you are. It's, it's, um, you've, have you heard the, the parable of... Um, I guess you call it the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Jesus told it in, in Luke 18. The tax collector in that story, he's the one who receives mercy from God. And do you remember what the tax collector prayed? 
He stands, he stands at a temple, said he, wouldn't, he didn't even dare to look up to heaven. He beats himself on the chest, and, and he did not say, God, have mercy upon me. I have committed some sins. He didn't say that. He said, God, have mercy on me. I am a sinner. In other words, he recognized, listen, the, the, the problem is not just what I've done with my hands. The problem is who I am in my heart. A person, see, so a person, a person who is repentant, they, they stand before God and they say, God, you know what? The problem in my life, it's me. I'm, I'm not, God, I'm not a good person who means well, but every now and then I mess up and do bad things. No, God, I am a broken person. I'm a selfish person. I'm an unbelieving person. I'm, I deserve your anger. And I, but God, I ask for your mercy. That's repentance. I used to go to a church where once in a while we'd sing this song. Um, I think it's an old spiritual, actually, and, and the song goes like this. It's me, it's me, it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. You ever hear that song? It's not my brother, not my sister. No, it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. In other words, that song, the sentiment of that song is, God, there, there's, there's a problem in this church that needs to be fixed, and guess what that problem is? Me. It's me. That's the attitude of repentance. So the cure always begins there. Always begins with repentance, but it doesn't stop there. It begins with repentance, and then it moves on to faith. Now, you know, faith, faith is not just an optimistic outlook about the future. No, faith, in the Bible, faith is trust in a specific person. It is trust in Jesus Christ. Why? Because only, G only Jesus can change the condition of our hearts. He can, he can free us of the guilt that's in our hearts. You know, do you know that? I hope you do. That when Jesus died on the cross, he atoned for the sins of everyone who trusts in him. Your guilt is gone. You're forgiven when you trust in Christ. What a wonderful thing, but it's even better than that. Not only does he have the power to take away the guilt of our sin, did you know he has the he has the authority to take away the power of our sin, the impurity of it. He has, he has the authority to take what is filthy and soiled and corrupt and broken and, and, and impure and to make it pure. And you see a hint of that power in this passage. Um, let me read again, verse 18 and 19. He's talking to his disciples. Are you still so dull? Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? It doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of the body. And then Mark, kind of a, um, a parenthetical note as the narrator, as the, as the one writing this, he adds this thought. He says, in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Now, Mark is not saying, hey, Jesus made an observation about food. Jesus just said, you know what, in my opinion, it doesn't matter what you eat. Does, you know, no, no, no. He's not making an observation about food. He's making a declaration about food. He is making a pronouncement. Yes, indeed, under the old covenant, there were certain foods that had been gone unclean. But Jesus is basically standing up and he's saying, by, by virtue of the authority invested in me by my Father as the Son of God, I am making a pronouncement these foods are clean now. I have the power to do that. In fact, in the Greek, literally, it says, by saying this, he purified the foods. He made them pure. Imagine how shocked they were. Who has the power to do this? But you see this throughout the Gospels. 
So in, in the Old Covenant, this idea of Im, impurity was a powerful, frightening idea. Impurity, just impurity trumped everything. So you know how this, you, you've played this game, um, rock, paper, scissors. Anybody ever play rock, paper, scissors? Yeah, come on, you played that. Ray, you don't act like you're better than that. You, so rock beats scissors, come on. Scissors beats paper. What paper beats? In the Old Covenant, impurity beat everything. There was a power to impurity that could not be stopped. If it didn't matter how pure you were. If impurity touched you, you lost. You're impure now. So lepers, lep people with leprosy were considered to be impure. You could be the purest person in all of Israel. If a leper touches you, you're impure now. This kind of bothers us, but women who were ha having their, 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 their cycle of bleeding were considered impure. If you touch something that had touched a woman in that, in that moment, you're impure. Certain kinds of food if they, if they, or, or, or animals, if they were to touch, if they were fa to fall into a, um, like a lizard is impure. If it falls into a, um, a ceramic vase or, or pot, you break the pot. It's impure now, right? Impurity beat everything. This carpenter from Nazareth walks onto the scene. And everything he touches, no matter how impure, the impurity does not invade him. His purity beats impurity. So when Jesus touches a leper, is Jesus now impure? No, the leper is clean. When, when a woman who had this just ongoing bleeding, when she touches Jesus, is, is he now impure? No, that woman is healed. The, the point is you see this power in Christ throughout the Gospels. He has the power to take what is impure and broken and corrupt and defiled and say, I'm changing that. It's pure now. And that power, listen to me, that power is not limited to leprosy. It's not limited to food. That power of Christ to heal and restore and cleanse and, and purify, it extends to our hearts. He can do that for me and you. Um, so I guess what I'm trying to say is whatever might be those deep, deep, broken, intractable problems in our hearts, do you believe that Jesus can... He can change those things. I've seen it happen with others. I've seen it happen with me. Jesus, listen, Jesus can break the chains of addiction. Do you believe that? Jesus, Jesus can set people free from fear, people just can, who are controlled by anxiety. Jesus can free them from that. Do you believe that? He can clean up dirty minds just patterns of thoughts. You think, I can't stop thinking this. I can't stop thinking this. He has the power to reshape twisted motives. He has the power to heal deep emotional wounds. Has he done that for you? And some of you will think, this will sound strange to you, but Jesus has the power to tear down demonic strongholds in people's lives. He can do that. I'm not suggesting that he always does these things 
instantaneously. Usually he will work in a way that's natural to us. I'm not suggesting he does things, these things without inviting our participation. Usually he'll invite us on a journey of healing, right, with him. But I'm, I, my fear is that sometimes, um, church, sometimes we settle for less in our lives than what Jesus wants to do for us. Does he want to heal some relationship in your life? Does he want to, does he want to set you free from some controlling power? Please don't, don't assume that he can't do this for you. His purity, his power. We'll sing this later in a song. The blood of Jesus is the double cure for sin. It saves us from its guilt and from its power. So the problem's here. The cure is Jesus. So let's go to Jesus right now. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we, we, we do admit that our biggest problem is inside each one of us, and, there's, and we're helpless to change it. We can't fix our own hearts. But you love us. You died for those who trust in you, and you have power through the Holy Spirit to set us free. So I, I want to pray over us as a church right now. For um, Some of us might be thinking very specifically of areas of our life where we need freedom or deliverance or healing. Maybe um, some of us have given up hoping. And so, mighty Jesus, in, in your powerful name, I, I pray for you to deliver and free and heal and restore that which is broken in our hearts. And do this for your glory. Amen.